Hi, this is Duke Parkinson, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is March 4th, 2013, and Richie Norton is back about his new book, The Power of Something Stupid. Hi, Richie. Hey, how are you? Really glad to have you here. When does the book actually come out? Uh, tomorrow, Steve. It comes out tomorrow, and I'm really, really excited. So, thanks for having me on here. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm sure you are excited. I'm sure there's a when did you actually start working on the book? You know, I've actually been working on it for six years, um, researching and toying around with the ideas. And, of course, over that time, my thinking changed. I found new information. Uh, but I really got serious about getting it done about two and a half, three years ago. That's, that's interesting. And it's part of the same story. The Future of Education is brought to you by Mighty Bell, Menko, and Blackboard Collaborate. Thanks to these organizations for support. It is a Web 2.0 project. Coming up, we have so many fun activities. Starting on March 28th, this is the free all-day school leadership summit. It's a virtual event, uh, over 50 presentations by school leaders and their peers. Um, we have Don Zhao, Bill Brennan, and Michael Pullen. You know, you have some great featured speakers. Uh, don't miss it. Really a lot of fun. We're hoping to build a, a, a really good event for school leaders. It's like the Global Education Conference with the Libraries Conference. And if you're going to be at ISTE uh, by June this year, please do come to our ISTE Unplugged events. They're all free. Crowdsourced activities that start with the All Day on Conference Pack Education with Audrey Waters Saturday before this uh, Anyway, lots more fun coming up in these virtual events. More get to be announced soon. These are worldwide free conferences that are highly inclusive. We love them. Coming up in the future of education tomorrow, uh, sort of a, a double header. Richard Millington talks about social community management. Ben Rhymes and Philippe Football Clubs on Thursday. We're going to talk about uh, childhood. I'm like fuzzy sound. Well, the fuzzy background sound, David, is actually Richie. It's my fault. And it's my fault. But we're going to live with it. Thank you, though. <laughs> anyway, lots of fun coming up this spring. Uh, terrific interviews. I hope you can join us yourself. If you've missed any, they are all recorded in full. Like the library form in there. Three versions. Uh, Roger Shank talked to us uh, last week. It's so fun to hear him. His blog is called Education Outrage. And you can hear it in his voice. A lot of sacred cows left by the wayside when talk to Roger. For that, Gavin Dykes on student voice and entrepreneurship. Maurice Gibbons talks about self-directed learning. Those are all up on the futureofeducation.com website. This is a chance for those of you in the studio audience to indicate where you're listening from. Look for the star to the left of the map, second icon down. Click on it twice on the map. And it's always fun to have you post in the chat the time, the temperature, something that lets us know what your day and life are like. I always recommend that you pull out the Polygon Olives, but I 
want to always recommend, I want to remember to pull out the chat box to make it larger so it's easier for you to see those of you in the audience. So to the right of that, the top right of the chat box is the little options menu. Click on you can detach the panel. And you can pull it out and you can even drag to make it larger or smaller. That will help you to follow the conversation. There's another way to follow the conversation. We have a Mighty Bell room for this space. Mighty Bell is the uh, social project that Jeanette and King's been working on. She was the co-founder of the name. I do consult for Janet, full disclosure. Uh, but I love her products, and she always makes me free for teachers. Here's the link in the chat. Continue the conversation after the show in Mighty Bell if you'd like to. And I'm going to turn my volume up. Maybe that will make it a little bit better. Overcome the slight uh, audio background noise we're from Richie. So, Richie, I, uh, you asked me to write a review for the book, <laughs> which was really fun, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in my review, I said there's kind of a magic to this book. There was, for me, uh, some real magic. Like this idea that, um, that ideas can seem stupid. And then later, in retrospect, turn out to be brilliant. Why does that happen? You know, that's a really interesting question. And I've found that stupid kind of goes in a loop. <laughs> what, what, you know, things that are creative, things that are new and innovative, don't always resonate with us immediately. And so we end up pointing at those things and labeling them with words like stupid, crazy, or, you know, far out, different, whatever, whatever the label is on it. But there's a misconception. Sometimes those ideas are labeled as such because of the difference in their nature. But in reality, they're not inherently stupid. They just appear to be so. And over time, as they turn out to be something that turns out to, uh, to be successful or helpful, people then say, oh, that was a smart idea. <laughs> so in retrospect, you know, things that are stupid become smart over time. But that can change as well, uh, if that kind of makes makes sense. Well, so there's a difference between a, a smart idea that appears to be stupid and, and what you call unhealthy stupid. Right? right. So it's not just that every dumb idea is going to be brilliant later, but it's that we're sort of built culturally in such a way that sometimes it's hard to see the smartness of an idea. And the main lesson here really is for the person who has the idea. It's kind of like pulling back the curtain on what really what happens to someone who has an innovative idea. Right. So, I mean, there's, we can get into a lot of of different tangents as we as we go through this, but I like to say that stupid is the new smart, <laughs> um, because again, when you come into this new belief that a stupid idea can be something great, you start thinking about it in different ways. So um, there's other thought leaders that have kind of expressed this. People like Steve Jobs, you know, he's quoted as saying, "Stay hungry, stay foolish," and then there's Pierre Omidyar, who started eBay, right, who, who said when he started eBay, first people said it was a stupid idea, but then people started to come on board. 
And you can go on and on and on with people, things like Twitter, the telephone, um, the television, the Model T, uh, even the Beatles were rejected when they first started. So it goes on and on. But the main idea is to first think about when you have an idea, is it inherently stupid or am I just scared? I really like that distinction. Um, because it's not really about somebody from the outside saying, oh, oh so I'm going to start looking for stupid ideas because then maybe they're smart. It's more about the process that you go through as an individual with an idea and recognizing that it takes a fair amount of courage to yes. think about something that hasn't been done before. And then we get to play with this question of, so what, how does this relate to education? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And uh, that would... That would be something important to ask is, how does this relate to education? I, I, I like the classrooms that say there are no dumb questions, there are no stupid questions, because it opens up that feeling of uh, being welcome, and you're able to really ask questions. But I think, let's think about it as, as teachers as well. Um, are we, in all aspects of our teaching, being inviting in a way that we don't prohibit students from really leaning into their own creativity and and being more assertive with their own, you know, intuition and ideas in the papers that they're writing. I think that a lot of people get so uh, caught up in being stuck in a box that they have to write one way or be like, be like their own teacher that they end up kind of copying other people, which, which in some forms can be helpful to try and learn a method or a model, but in other ways it stifles uh, the innovation that we need to be coming out of the schools uh, so that our, you know, students can contribute to the world and get the jobs that they need in the way that we need them to do so. As I was reading the book, I kept thinking about uh, a woman you probably don't know, but is familiar to many of us, named Angela Myers. And, and Angela talks about habits and attitudes, she calls them habitudes. And you mentioned the word fear, and, and, and you also talk about courage in the book. Right? So right. These, are, these are important things to think about if you're trying to educate someone to be able to do things that make a difference. Right? So uh, you talk about the, this is sort of like building, making a puzzle, putting the puzzle pieces together. Yeah, yeah. We lost your audio buzzer for a second. So the, 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 every person sort of putting together their own puzzle. So the idea there is that there's this creative puzzle where I mean, if you think about a puzzle and you're going to put it together, you know ultimately that all the pieces are there. You just don't know how you're going to piece them together. And so you start with the corners and work your way uh, towards the inside. And that's the way it is with starting what I call stupid ideas or your most meaningful opportunities. You may not think you have everything you need, but if you kind of say, you know what, everything that I need is out there somewhere. It's just a puzzle that I need to piece together. Then you can, you know, think about your life in terms of starting with the corners or the small pieces or the easy parts and then working your way in until you can big, you, until you can build out the whole the whole picture. And so that's the idea. Life is a puzzle. Um, why not start piecing it together? A lot of people, they, they think, I don't have all the pieces, 
And so they get stuck. And then this idea of doing something that's actually really important to you never ends up happening because you just stop right there because you can't see the whole picture. But if we believe, you know what, it's out there somewhere, I think to piece it together, then it's empowering because you can start. And I think that students, they might not see the whole big picture like a teacher can see, you know, what their future may be like, but if you can help them see the pieces and start putting them together, you can really build out a greater plan for them where they can be successful. So I'm interested in your own process of writing the book. Did you encounter okay. that fear? Where were there moments of courage? And what were sort of the personal strategies that you used to keep yourself going when you maybe questioned yourself? Okay, good, really good question. So writing a book is, is terrifying <laughs> because you, you are putting yourself on the line and you are, I mean, it's in print. It's not going away. And people can point fingers at you and, you know, you could be, some, some people might say, you know, the way you thought of that is wrong or you should be thinking about it differently. Or there may just be a misspelling in there. I don't know. But the way I went about the process, um, I don't know if it's similar or, or different from other authors, but like I said, I spent six years doing it. And what I would do is it would come in waves of inspiration. So I would focus on one topic and I'd research that a lot and write down all my ideas and I'd try instead of instead of writing the whole thing out, I would actually do bullet points of all the main pieces that I wanted to include in the book. And so I ended up emailing myself uh, literally bullet points with references, sources, um, talks, whatever I could find, and I'd have hundreds of these bullet points until I got to a point where I was like, wow, this is a lot of information, but how am I going to put it together? And at that point, I started um, putting together an outline or refining my outline. So once I had a really good chapter outline, I could then take the bullet points that I've already put together and I can put them into each chapter one by one. So, so you can imagine I now have a chapter outline with, say, 10 or 20 bullet points within each chapter, more or less, and then I could go back and actually do the writing. And if I got bored with a certain topic or I was more passionate about one area of the book than another, then from a day-to-day -day basis, I could switch and work on those different parts because I already knew I had everything there that I wanted to kind of get out. Um, so does that make sense? Yeah. It does. But the temptation might be to say, okay, so Richie had this process. Let's quantify that process. Now let's teach it to someone else. That's not really what I'm hearing. What was intriguing for me was, first, that you had waves of inspiration, right? Yeah. So one of the things that I, I think that we understand better when we think deeply about learning is that it doesn't really come in 40-minute blocks, right? That some of this kind of learning is... Um, happens in your life in ways that you have to kind of figure out for yourself. And my guess is that learning journals help a lot of uh, teachers to, to uh, help students understand how they learn. But I also think it's interesting that we, uh, we develop our own systems for creativity, which may not be the same. You emailed yourself notes. You yeah. know, I take notes in Evernote. Someone else right. might do a Google Doc. Um, yeah. But it is about kind of finding your own 
process, which is likely to be somewhat unique. It's true. I, I can imagine how how cool it would be in the classroom, and some teachers may be already doing this, to say, you know, you know what, throughout the week or throughout the month or throughout the semester, however you know, the timeline is, just have a little piece of paper on the side that you keep in your desk or or what, however it works, and just write down the things that you might be interested in learning more about, or write down something that you've learned. And I think over time, like a learning journal, they can go back and they might have 10, 20 bullet points, and you could say as a teacher to the to the student, now pick one of those things and do a project around it. And it can be whatever kind of project you want. Imagine how freeing and also um, scary <laughs> this might be. Do a project around it. Write a paper on it or do some sort of poster board on it. Uh, go and do some service learning with it. I don't know. But they might be able to then kind of customize their education to their interests by going through this, this process of journaling, writing it down, and then reflecting on it, being mindful, and trying to make something come to life out of it. So I'm going to want to dive down to two aspects of education. The first being how we think about students and creativity within your model. And then the second is sort of education change and teachers who are doing things differently. But before we get there, what's the relationship between the power of starting something stupid and resumes are dead? Oh, that's a good question. Well, look, I'll tell you what's interesting. I was writing The Power of Starting Something Stupid um, before I wrote Resumes Are Dead. And so I wrote Resumes Are Dead while I was writing The Power of Starting Something Stupid. So The Power of Starting Something Stupid really is about taking these meaningful ideas and doing something about them. Whereas during the process, I had people contacting me saying, Richie, um, I can't get a job. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Um, or I don't like my job, but I want to change it. You know, I this idea that resumes are dead came out because they were telling me I was, I'm giving out four resumes, or, four resumes a day, you know, every day for six weeks. And I've only gotten a couple callbacks and no interviews. And I was just like, wow, the resume is dead. And so we went from, uh, with resumes are dead, I basically was writing a, a manifesto to my friends and family and people who are, who are struggling in this area on how employers are looking at people now and how to network your way into a job, especially by getting experience through small projects that really show your best self to an employer. And um, this isn't about resumes or dead, but the way they're, they're interrelated, I guess you could say the power of starting something stupid is kind of an expansion on resumes or dead, where it's more inclusive of doing any project in any area that you're trying to work on, whereas Resume of the Dead was tailored towards, you know, really customized towards how do you get a job in today's, um, you know, economy. Yeah, for those of us thinking about education, there's a nice segue from one to the next. Um, the message of the book also isn't about uh, that this is going to be easy or that it's about being reckless, right? I mean, choosing this path is hard work. It's it's really hard work, um, but it's meaningful. If you're going to do work, you might as well do work that matters. Um, the reason I, I mentioned I've been writing for six years, and then about three years into it, I got serious about writing it. 
the reason I got serious about it, and you might have asked this question later, but I'll just do it now, <laughs> is um, you know, I had a brother-in-law that passed away at age 21, unexpectedly in his sleep. And he was living on and off with us for about five years, and he became so close to our family that this experience literally shook us to the core. Um, a few years later, we had our fourth son and named him Gavin after his um, late uncle, Gavin. And this sweet baby boy is perfectly healthy, and he ended up catching something called um, pertussis, or whooping cough. And he ended up passing away at only 10 weeks old. And I just realized, you know, life is short, and it's not just some cliche. Life really is short. And if we have these ideas of things we should do, why wait? Around the same time, I was president of a financial services company, and I was doing interviews with hundreds of different people, especially people approaching retirement. And I found out that a lot of these people, they said, you know, I had this idea, but I waited until I thought I needed more, you know, a time when I would have more time, more education, more experience, and more money to do what I really wanted to do. But when they finally got to a, a, a spot in their life where they thought they could finally start, a spouse had passed away, they didn't have the money they thought they'd have, they still needed to get more education or experience because their circumstances had changed, the world had changed, um, and they didn't have the money they thought they'd have. And I just realized, you know, when we have these ideas, we shouldn't wait to start them until we have more of something else. Because in the future, we're going to have a whole new set of circumstances that we need to navigate. Bringing that back to education, my goodness, how many people say, I'm going to start this idea when I graduate? <laughs> well, what if they don't have enough time in life? I mean, I'm just, you know, just like my, my, my brother-in-law, what if you don't make it, you know? Uh, but even further, what if you started that idea Without the education, this is maybe it sounds crazy. <laughs> that you, what if that idea if you started it without your um, graduate degree or whatever degree you're working on? What if you started it in school and you got mentors like your teacher or or someone from the outside to help you hone in and craft your your message or refine your thinking? How much more valuable would your education be when you finally do graduate if you had all this project? based experience on this wonderful idea that you've been holding inside of you. Uh, so the power of starting something stupid really is about not waiting, but starting now, regardless of your circumstance, so that you can live your most fulfilling life and influence the world for good. So I've heard that story of the, your brother-in-law, Gavin, and your son, Gavin, several times. But it's still hard to hear that story without tearing up. And as I read it again in the book, it, it made me feel like there's this moral imperative that we have to treat every child as invaluable. But wow. that we just yeah. don't know. Yeah, that's that's powerful. Uh, we we just don't know. I mean, we we never know. First of all, we never know what some what a child can become in the future. But regardless of that. We don't know how important that child is to someone in the now, you know, their mom and dad or their guardian or their relatives or, or whatever. Um, but I, I think we do need to treat each child 
you know, what if every class day were, you know, kind of like your last class day, your last day of class? I know every day can't be that spectacular, but what if mentally you treated it like that? What kind of a education would our kids be getting if we treated the classroom as this? This is our last class. Um, I think that could be, you know, really, really powerful. Okay, so in the book you talk about this um, putting off or waiting as the deferred life plan. It feels like most of us have been raised with this, right? It's the pay your dues, um, do what everybody else is doing kind of moment. I think the Jeff Bezos um, story kind of helps to describe a, a way to get out of that frame of mind, right? Oh, that's a really good story and a good, good point. So Jeff Bezos, he's the one who started Amazon.com. He had a great job uh, before he started Amazon. He was working on Wall Street. And he had this idea, beginning of the Internet, to sell books online. And, I mean, today that sounds like, well, duh, it's, that's a great idea. But back then it's kind of like, what are you thinking? You know? And he, he went to his boss um, on Wall Street and said, I have this idea. What do you think about it? And his boss took him on a two-hour-long walk in the park. And long story short, said, you know what? That's actually a good idea, but not for someone with a job. <laughs> you don't need to be, you know, doing this. But Jeff asked himself uh, this question, and this is a question we can all ask ourselves as we reflect upon our own ideas and whether we should do them or not. He asked himself this, will I regret it when I'm 80? And... Jeff Bezos said to himself, basically, yes, I would regret not starting to sell books online when I'm 80. And so he quit his job in the middle of the year, which is a crazy time to quit because you don't get your annual bonuses. And that can confuse you, too, when you're trying to figure out whether you should start something now or wait. Uh, but that's what he did. And he packed up his bags. Uh, got in the car with his wife and drove from New York to Washington to start Amazon. And the rest is history. You know, he's one of the richest people in the world. Uh, he has one of the most successful businesses in the world. And, um, you know, from, from the way it looks from the outside, he seems like a happy guy, right? Uh, but that is a good question to ask yourself when you have a, a quote-unquote stupid idea is, will I regret it when I'm 80? Now, let me just say that that doesn't mean that every idea you have is going to be successful, but at least you'll be able to say, I tried, and that you, you can live without regret, you know, without the regret of wondering what if. And if you do fail, you can learn from that failure and build upon it and move towards, you know, whatever other dreams you might have and learn from that experience. I'm really glad you brought the, that up because you're working really hard to make sure this book is a success. And we know that, you know, thousands of books get published every year that don't sell, I mean, I'm, I don't know the exact numbers, but don't sell as many copies as the authors would like. And I do right. think that's a valuable perspective, but sometimes things don't work out, but you're, you're doing something you feel is important. Right. You, 
it brings meaning to your life. And life is more than money. It really is about contributing. I think that we are all creators in one way or another. And if we're not entering that creative space, um, we're missing out on something, especially when we have these ideas that keep pressing on our minds and we tell ourselves, no, I don't have enough time, I don't have enough education, I don't have enough money. Uh, well, what do you have time for? <laughs> right? Uh, we, we always, I like to say, and it's been said before, our best days are ahead of us. And we shouldn't be living in the past. And if that's true, that means we need to start doing something right now so that those days ahead of us can be better. We, we need something to look forward to. And working on those um, pressing ideas, those stupid ideas, can really bring new life uh, to us. There's too many people that are, you know, the walking dead, so to speak, just kind of going through the motions and not really living. So if we shift gears back now to thinking about education, uh, one thing that, that most parents experience is watching your child feel enormously influenced by the peer culture around them. It's as though we're, we're sort of architected this way to be responsive to what other people think. Is, is, do you think school is sometimes the cause of that, or is it just a reflection of the fact that we go through a transition where we become very sensitive to what other people think, and that this is a part of something we have to figure out for ourselves? So if I understand it right, the question is kind of about you know, peer pressure and falling in into that, and whether it has something to do with school or, or whatnot. Um, I think that we go to school, and so therefore we are around people who influence influence us for good or for bad. But I don't I don't know if if peer pressure and the way we're influenced. Uh, I don't know if that ever ends. I mean, uh, I think that. In the teacher's lounge, you're probably influenced by other teachers. And I know that I'm influenced by my coworkers and um, the different things that I do. But I think what's helpful is, again, to acknowledge the fact that we're influenced for good or for bad by our peers and to try and surround ourselves with people who are, in one way or another, on higher ground, uh, people that can help lift us and take us to uh, the next level. But likewise, that we're being the kind of person that people want to hang around with that are doing those types of things, that we're adding value wherever we go. Before the show started, I mentioned to you um, Jamie McMillan, who wrote a book called Legendary Learners, and put him on the show. And Jamie talks in her book about the importance of overcoming something significant, um, that, that people who became... Uh, successful, uh, publicly visible and successful uh, learners in their lives had to overcome a challenge. What is the role of perseverance, do you think, in achieving things of value? Um, good question. Uh, I, I think that there, there really is something to say for challenges in helping us go from where we are to where we want to be. I mean, how often when we're kind of coasting is it because there's nothing challenging or pressing um, happening? So I think that perseverance is important. You know, you don't know whether what you're doing is going to succeed or not. But again, bringing it back to that will I regret it when I'm 80 question, 
Uh, if it is something that is meaningful to you, if it's part of what I call in the book your why, if it's something that you um, really resonate with, you will persevere through it. If it's something that you're not that passionate about, or you're scared in some way or another, you will let it fall by, by the wayside when those challenges do come. I'm interested for those who are in the audience who are doing things that they feel aren't necessarily accepted by their peers, which is often the case, especially for those who are doing programming uh, tech into education uh, or in the tech audience. Do you feel that this applies to you as much as adults as it does to students? And how have you kind of navigated those waters? Feel free to try to put that in the chat or when we get to the Q&A and uh, raise your hand. Um, let's talk about the, you're not a specialist in education, Richard, so there's no expectation that you would have been thinking about this. But we are looking at a period of time when we're really rethinking education, in large part because of the ways in which technology has provided learning opportunities outside of the institution. Um, are there specific lessons for adults that are different from children? Have you, have you ever thought about that in terms of uh, persevering with a, a smart, stupid idea? Can you rephrase the question? I'm not sure if I understood it exactly. Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just wondering if you've noticed the difference, say, with your own children and, and yourself, mm. as you persevered okay. this book and as you think about your children persevering. Are there specific no. lessons for adults that those who are in the, in the learning space might use as they're thinking about working to change education or to do something different in their classroom? Okay. Well, I'll, I'll bring it home then. You know, me persevering through a book, um, I guess there are some similarities and some uh, some differences, obviously, in helping my children persevere through, uh, you know, going, going to their own classes and uh, finishing their own projects. Uh, for me, I needed... Uh, every once in a while, a reward, <laughs> right? I needed to reward myself with a cookie or uh, I needed to go get outside. I love to surf. So I go surfing. I, I, I would work really hard on something, and then I would need a break. Um, and I think kids need that, too. I, I think that they get burned out uh, sometimes, and uh, I think that they do need they do need a little push. They need They need that vision that here's where you're going, and you can do it, right? Uh, but in between where they're starting and where they're trying to end up, I, th I really believe that um, having a short term or a small win is what they call it in uh, academia is 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 very helpful to go from where you are to where you want to be. That that concept of of achieving in the small and then building incrementally until you can actually uh, finish that project or achieve that goal. One of the things that this social media culture has brought us is the ability to create communities across geographical or time differences, um, oftentimes allowing educators to find other educators with similar ideas and passions. How important is that social peer support? I think that it's 
really important. And I think that it's self-evident in the fact of, you know, how social media has grown so so quickly. Um, it wouldn't have grown so quickly if it wasn't something that was important um, to us. And so I think having that, again, that, that peer group and like-minded individuals, and even through social media because they can be accessed basically 24-7, uh, is critical to our the way the world works today. Um, if you, I mean, I, I, I could be wrong, of course, but someone who's not a part of that, I really think they're missing out on on something big for sure. So I think it's it's a it's a good part of of growing and making things happen. I read a review of a movie recently that uh, discussed the fact that we have a hard time with movies now that don't have happy endings. Right. Yeah. Right. That, that in fact, uh, sort of Les Mis being one of the great examples of how literature for a long time has um, presented us with this idea that sometimes good people work hard and aren't rewarded. Um, how does that fit into this, uh, your own sort of personal sense of mission and accomplishment? Do you think that, that we are learning something that allows us to say that we don't, we don't have to accept suffering as a part of life and difficulty? Or is there some sort of basic truth that it's still valuable to remember? Um, I, good question. Re, re, again, rewards are important to help motivate you to go from where you are to where you want to be. But suffering also helps, you know, kick you in the pants to get something done. Um, I, I might still be trying to write this book if my my son, um, if I didn't have that experience. Um, I, I mean, I'd rather have my son, <laughs> obviously, than the book. But that suffering did... Um, did help me change the way I think and change the way I act. Um, I don't, I don't, I think that we, but it's important though, at the same time, I could have taken that same suffering and I could have went into a, a tailspin and I could be a completely different person rather than, you know, optimistic and trying to make things happen. I could be extremely depressed and woe is me and I could have stopped doing what I was doing. So I think in everything, whether it's reward-based or something else, you know, it's looking at those experiences like suffering and seeing them for what they are and then making a choice, uh, a choice to make it, whatever it, whatever it happened to you, uh, be something to improve you, that it's for your betterment. And I think if we look at the world through that lens, uh, I think we can get a lot more done. We're going to move to Q&A in a minute, so if you have a question for Richie, please feel free to put it in the chat, or you can raise your hand using the hand icon in the participant window. Richie, were there people that you interviewed with the book whose stories changed your life? Hmm. Yes. Yes, definitely. That's a really good question. Um, let me think about one in particular. Well, okay, this one, this one's really interesting. This is, this is probably different than what you were expecting. So I interviewed one guy who was a surfer who surfed, um, big waves. We're in Hawaii and we're talking, you know, 20 foot waves and bigger. And his story kind of changed the way I approach my own work because he, First of all, you don't 
you can't ride a 20-foot wave if you don't know how to swim, right? And uh, he'd, um, he knew how to swim. <laughs> but what happened to him is he's riding this massive wave. Long story short, he gets thrown from the lip of the wave because the wind was holding him up too high. He came down to the flats. The wave came on broke right on top of him, and his board swung down, hit him in the leg, and broke his femur in half. And he ended up getting crushed by wave after wave after wave at Sunset Beach on Oahu, and there was no one there to help him until he finally saw someone in the distance. This is right before he thought he was going to die. And this guy swims over, ditches his board. Uh, this person's name was Andy. The surfer was Andy. And, and pins Andy on, on uh, his own board, and after wave after wave would hit them and, and tumble them all the way until they finally got into the shore. Um, Andy was fine. He ended up getting a metal pole in his leg. And well, that's a cool story. What's interesting is he got back out in the water surfing big waves just a couple months later. And I asked him, first of all, why? <laughs> why would you do that and how? And what I learned was uh, surfing, well, this might sound weird to, to some people, but for him, was really, really important. And it took courage. It wasn't that he was fearless. It was that it was something that he loved. And the reason he was able to get back out on these huge waves was because he had fallen and gotten hurt on smaller waves over years and years and years. So he starts out on maybe a two-foot wave and a five-foot wave, and he works way up 10-foot, 15-foot, and then 20-foot waves. Well, along that process, there were lots of miniature failures and successes where he was able to build up a tolerance for success and failure. So when he got to where his big-picture dream was, those big 20-foot waves, when he failed, he was able to then get back out there. And the reason that changed me is because that's the way we look at it. I mean, I look at my book, and to me, that was a huge, big-picture dream. And I couldn't get there if I hadn't have written one or two pages a day, right? It took those small ways to get there. Now, this book, I hope it does well, but if it doesn't, I look at it differently. I look at it as, you know what, that was a, a wave that, I'm, that I might, might fall off of. And it might be one that I do well on. Who knows? But at least I know how to get back out there if I need to. And so I think that applies uh, to everyone. And if you think about your big picture dreams and scale them down to smaller uh, projects, you can build on top of those. And you can really make anything happen um, by starting small and then going big. Well, there's some obvious parallels there to education, which is if we're hoping students will be courageous innovative, thoughtful, hardworking, then we should be providing them with those opportunities on the smaller waves over the course of time to, to get to that place. Kate I love that. To know, uh, Kate Hedman says, I'm interested in your insights regarding determining whether stupid ideas are brilliant ones in disguise or really just stupid. How do you make the distinction? Um, that's a really good question I, and I get it often. And first, you have to decide whether you're going to do the idea or not. And at that point, I, I'll bring it back to the water credit 180 rule. If it's that important to you, you should probably at least try it. And then I say, um, you, you can't know unless you try. You can't know. 
Now, when I say try, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to, you know, get another mortgage on your home <laughs> or quit your job or do something monumental. Again, you can experiment with a project. And, and a project, the reason I say project, because if you say it like this, instead of saying, I have an idea to do X, tell yourself, I have project X. Because a project denotes a beginning and an end. And that means you can start it, you can do it, and you can finish it. And it can be a failure or a success. So test it out. Not the whole thing, maybe just a piece of it. And see how it goes. And if it works, that's great. Move forward. If it doesn't work, you might want to move on or at least change it and, and test it out again. Kate makes a, uh, I'm sorry, Deborah makes a point in the chat about in one of our sessions talking about um, the opportunities that U.S. children have to start over uh, at every grade level. In a lot of countries, if you take a certain test of a certain age and you don't succeed, you're pretty much stuck there. Was there a story in the book or a person that you met where you felt like their willingness to keep trying over a really long period of time, um, trying and failing, trying and failing, uh, was inspirational to you? Is there a, is, is it maybe the Wright brothers? Where, where else do you see that uh, perseverance over long periods of time? Good. Um, the Wright brothers, definitely. Um, this one, I don't know if this is a perfect example, but it's this guy, his name is Mike Cologne. He is a celebrity wedding photographer, but he didn't start out that way. Um, his high school counselor, career counselor, told him that there was a lot of jobs in engineering, and so he should be an engineer. And he spent four years in college, I think it was Cal State Fullerton, um, to become an engineer until he realized that he did not want to be an engineer. <laughs> and he started doing photography on the side. And he ended up starting college over because of those, he, he, there wasn't a photography class, but there was a, there, or a degree, there was a marketing degree. And so he started over four years again doing marketing. So while he was doing that, he could learn how to be a photographer. And uh, now he is one of the most renowned professional photographers in the world shooting celebrity weddings and other other things, and that took a lot for him to persevere through. Um, that's an example of someone who did that through through education. Um, other examples uh, in oh, okay, go ahead, Steve. <clears throat> I was going to say that was a really good story because it actually involves this shift. And another lesson that came out of legendary learners was this idea that it was really important for people to be able to stop doing one thing and start something else, which is hard in education enough to feel like if you don't finish, you haven't succeeded. So I like this, that you told a story about sort of a shift and a change. Um, were there any other stories of sort of significant change of focus or career that come to mind? Um, well, here's one about perseverance. We all know this one, Walt, Walt Disney. We don't think of him... Now we think of him as just the greatest success ever. But you understand, when he started and he tried to get into it, I have a quote in the book where he was um, uh, he was told that he wasn't he wasn't creative enough <laughs> to, to to work in this space. And what's interesting is he took that. Uh, I don't know if he did this directly, but I have another quote from Walt Disney 
where he says, in his own studio, we allow no geniuses around our studio. Uh, so I think he took that humility. Um, uh, he, he experienced something humbling, and he took that humility and brought it into Disney, where anyone who thinks that they're better than someone else, you know, maybe shouldn't be around. Um, uh, another wise person said something similar along these lines was William Shakespeare. Here's a, a, a quote. He says, The fool does think he is wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool. Again, bringing it back to the humility of understanding that we don't know everything, but in not knowing everything, we can really um, make something happen. Uh, that's, that's where we can see it. Um, another example, uh, another great example, how about Paul Newman? Uh, the founder of Newman's Own, you know, the salad dressing. He had his own career, and then he's like, you know, I want to, I want to make meaning in the world with a nonprofit. He puts his nonprofit together, and and starts selling salad dressing, and has donated so much money to different causes. But when he started that, people said to him, "Are you crazy?" And he said, "You know, stick my face on the label of salad dressing." Uh, but he did, and look where he's at now. So. We can change careers. We can change, and that—that's part of the stupid ideas. You know, I—is I, the idea that I'm in one career path, and then we think it would be quote unquote stupid to go and do another career path. But that's not true. I mean, people change careers all the time, and you can too. Richie, Maria wants to know, why do some people take steps toward their ideas and responsibility for their stupidity and help their kids to do the same, while others wait for someone else to tell them what to do by giving them a job, a grant, or some other permission? <laughs> That's the question of the, of the year, I guess. Um, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I, I, I really am a, a believer in being proactive, as Stephen Covey always taught, um, and I think sometimes maybe it's the way they're raised, maybe it's not. I know that in some families one kid's proactive and one's not. Um, but whatever it is, what I try to do in the book is is say, hey, this is a wake-up call. So for people who are proactive, this is just a boost. And for people who aren't, I mean, I, I really dig deep and say, here's reasons why you need to get going. Life is short. Uh, you have this idea. You don't have any excuses. Time, money, education. Once you read my book, is not an excuse for you anymore. Um, so I'm doing everything I can to help those people who aren't proactive <laughs> to, to be so. If you have a final question for Richie, please feel free to put it in the chat or to raise your hand. Raise your hand. That's the third icon open in my window. We have a relatively tight time schedule today, so we're going to finish right on the dot, but we do have time for one or two more questions if you have them. Richie, anyone else you were really glad to get to know from having researched the book? Um, good question. I got to know a lot of amazing people. One person that comes to mind is named Laura Casey, and uh, she went through a divorce. And around that same time, her brother was in a terrible accident. Around that same time, um, her family's home was wiped out in Hurricane Ivan, I believe. And she was just just sad. Um, but 
she picked up her life because she believed that she could. Uh, ended up getting remarried and started a magazine uh, called um, Southern Weddings, of all things. And and now she is one of the the leading people in her industry because she started this simple project and now it's turned into something huge. And it was really inspiring to get to know her because she would say things like, you know what, you got this. <laughs> and, and, and she was just so optimistic that despite all the challenges you may experience, if you do start, even if you have to walk through the mud and the weeds, you can really make something happen. I've given Maria Duchkova the microphone. Maria, just click on that talk button at the top left. Hello? Can you hear me okay? Yeah. yeah. Hi, how are you? Hey. Uh, thank you for making the book and thank you for appearing here. So I kind of want to follow up on some of the last questions about power and um, maybe some different people. Have you seen some communities or subcultures that encourage this power a bit more, encourage people to take chances. So there are some pockets of innovation and so on, Silicon Valley. Have you seen any subcultures like this at all? You don't know about individual people. Nobody does. I don't know. Nobody knows. But maybe cultures? Good question. Um, let me follow up on that, though. Is are you speaking of like in the education sphere or just or or anywhere? I am speaking anywhere because we can reproduce in education sphere the good things we see elsewhere. So just if you have seen a place where a lot of people do it, tell us please. <laughs> well, why don't I start with my my kids' school? Um, they are what's called a leader in me school. And it's, uh, uh, my kids go to a charter school, and it's a seven habits, you know, the seven habits of highly effective people. Um, it's a seven habits school, and they really teach um, the kids how to live those seven habits, and they, and they inspire creativity in everything they do and leadership in everything they do. For example, this might, this is a very simple thing that maybe a lot of schools do. Instead of a parent-teacher conference, it's a student-led parent-teacher conference where the student is actually telling us what they did and the teacher is kind of off on the side listening in. Um, that, that's one example of Leader and Me uh, program. I think leaderandme.com is the website if you want to know more about what they do. Uh, I think that as far as communities go, I think there's actually communities around in innovation and creativity um around some really popular magazines and, and, and books. And, for example, um, let's just say, for example, TED. I think TED really inspires um, creativity and innovation, and they've, you know, graciously opened up all their talks for free on, um, on YouTube. That's a really great community. I think that other magazines like Entrepreneur.com and Success and Fortune and Forbes going into business they have little inter, uh, communities. A lot of them might have their own social media type communities, or just on Facebook. There's different Facebook groups, and and things like that. Um, I'm part of a. I'm a speaker at a conference called What If, and the, the What If conference is all about um, 
basically how, how big can you think, how can you make something happen. And they do conferences all around the world, and, and uh, they're a fantastic community. But here's what they did, because I think you can start your own community if you really want to. They did a conference, and then they made a Facebook group so that everybody who went to the conference could be in the Facebook group and talk about um, uh, what they learned and what they're, what they're working on. So even today, everyone's saying what they're doing and how, and people are encouraging each other. I think that Future of Education that Steve is doing is a community like that, and uh, his other Classroom 2.0, those things are great communities. But you can also start your own. If you have like-minded individuals, you can put it out there, hey, I have this idea, let's start a, because Facebook's free, let's start a Facebook group. Um, I think you can actually kind of create that community that you're looking for. Thank you. Thanks for that question. It is our last question. Richie, thanks again so much for coming on. The, the book is The Power of Starting Something Stupid. It's available starting tomorrow. Richie, I really hope that it goes well for you. Uh, hey, thank you so much for having me on. It really means the world. Thanks for all the questions, everybody, and uh, very grateful to be on here. Thanks again. Thanks to Richie. Thanks, everybody, for being here tomorrow at Doubleheader. Richard Millington in the morning is in the UK, so it's an earlier show. Talks on social community management, and then Ryan will talk about the football clubs. Thanks, Richie. Take care, everybody. Bye now. See you. Thank you.